we sound top notch. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, I should probably stop saying ladies and gentlemen. How about this? Welcome to Super Together. I'm James Cochran. And I'm Ginger Rothis. And today we are talking about money. Mm, dollars. Dollar, big, dollar, dollar bills. Dollar bills. Big cheddar, topic. Ch- uh, cheddar, cheddar. What else? Dough. Bread. Uh, I've dough. heard it being bread. called bread more often. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that coming I think, back? I guess. Was that, Seems like is an that old a, word. Got to get that bread. Making bread. Get, get that paper. Um, there's a lot of things you Banking, can call. Bank cash. Yeah, I, it's yeah, fun to think about all these. Yeah. Printing money. Um, <laughs> I think, so I sent out a survey earlier this week. Um, we got about reasonable number of responses. Um, I'm going to go back and edit the number of <laughs> responses I actually said, because <laughs> I'm trying to create this illusion that we have a million listeners. Um, oh, speaking of illusions. So I was looking, you know, I have this like online scheduling software uh-huh. and I was looking at a way I could integrate a bunch of stuff together. So I was kind of out there shopping. There are on scheduling software, there are, there is an option that says appear like more busy. busy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, is this seriously what our society has come to like appear? So you put in your schedule and then you can click this. I want to look 25% booked, 50% wow. booked or like 75. And I'm like, what does this accomplish? As with most things in life, it feels like the answer is available to us through Parks and Rec. Um, <laughs> and that's that Entertainment 720, uh, because they'll go around the world twice for their clients. One of the primary reasons for the failure was that they didn't have a business model. Another reason for their failure was that they leaned into this that same idea. Okay, said, yes. We told everybody that we were booked six months out and because um, we wanted to appear really, really busy, and then they just ran out of money before before they were able to appear busy. <laughs> but awesome. I like that idea, and there's part of me, you know, um, I understand that, you know, and as we're we're talking about money, obviously, and I think that there will be value to mm-hmm. considering the degree to which, you know, the appearance of money and sort of the cultural taboos that exist around money, mm-hmm. and the way those things shape the decisions that we make, the decisions that we are hung up on. And uh, yeah, I think that it'll be it's so interesting. interesting. This perception thing is just, just, I'm, I hope with this big reset button of quarantine time, um, Mm. that we're figuring some of this kind of stuff out and that we come out of this a little less uh, focused on perceptions. Yeah. Then we went into it, but yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so as I mentioned, we feel that we did is we sent it out a survey and we got some responses. I think we got a good mix of folks. We have about two thirds, three quarters of the respondents uh, are in a committed relationship. And then another 5.6 are attached, but not super serious, which left about 22.2% that were single and either, you know, some some version of single and loving it mm-hmm. single and looking that's at that. good that's interesting okay so it was, it was a good mix but our i think you know when i looked at the broad concerns that people were offering thought that it i mean we could we will probably end up doing 30 episodes on money in mm-hmm. the 25 year run of this podcast <laughs> but the first episode it feels just important to sort of zoom out and say 
what is it that bothers us individually, relationally, culturally about money? Mm-hmm. And so I just, I guess I would just, I'll pose the question in your own life, in the lives of the people that you are caring for in relationship with, what do you see people getting caught up on most as it relates to money? Yeah, I think it's the never enough phenomenon. Mm. Um, and, you know, to me, money is is another um, indication of um this scarcity mentality, this it's mm-hmm. never enough. I and kind of this competition mentality of there's not enough to go around. So I have to yeah. hoard all that I can and hang on to it because I might lose it. So kind of this threatened way of living um, or scarce way of living. And I yeah. think we see it not just with money, but with love and recognition and there's not enough jobs for all of us. There's not enough, there's not enough food. And, and, you know, we certainly saw scarcity mentality in our behaviors when the virus came to North America. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, uh, and we saw hoarding behaviors of, I can't run out of things. I can't be without things. Um, at the same time we were f- seeing job loss. And so it was really, it's mm-hmm. an interesting you know, I think our behaviors with money are so interesting. And then crisis really put the spotlight on it, but yeah. not enough to answer your question, I think. Yeah, no, that it, it does seem to be all bound up in the lack, that sense mm-hmm. of how will I manage without money? One of the things, uh, let's let's do some world history. Oh, good. By world, by world history, I think I mean like global history. So I what what I find most interesting is that for most of the history of like life on earth, we existed in sort of like a subsistence kind of dynamic where it's just like, are you hungry? Just eat some food. Just go Mm. get, see that food there. Just go get it and eat it. Now, certainly there were times where food was scarce. And I think that that's why that idea is hardwired into our brain because we're thinking, you know, I don't know when I'm going to find the next, buffalo carcass that I can find the bone marrow from. So I think that that scarcity mentality is baked in and hardwired in a particular way. But what I think is maybe more interesting is that the relationship of scarcity and money is far more of a cultural thing Mm -hmm. because money is a new thing. Money has only been around, I don't know, like some form of money has probably been around, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 years. But in terms of like currency and using currency to buy goods and things, uh, it was not super common to just sort of have money. You usually there was more bartering going on, and money comes onto the scene. I don't know, past two, three hundred years or so, mm-hmm. there's going to be some you know sociologist who's going to jump in and be like, "This is all wrong," and that's fine. But I do think it's important to recognize that from an evolutionary perspective, at least, money is not something that is hardwired. Scarcity can be hardwired. But this idea that money is the thing that satisfies my need to overcome scarcity, that's a newer thing. And that feels like a more cultural thing. We've sort of replaced this idea of nuts and berries and shelter and, you know, these different things that we use to meet our basic needs and said, okay, money is that thing now. And what I think has happened is that people pursue money as an end unto itself rather than considering what is it that money actually affords me the opportunity to do. You mentioned the way that this shows up in our, you know, new world. You, you ever have one of those things where you're just thinking, 
is everybody else crazy or am I crazy? Who is the crazy person? You know, when people are hoarding toilet paper, I'm thinking like, do you think there's not going to be enough toilet paper? Like, do you really think there's not going to be enough? I think there's going to be enough toilet paper. But the supply chain only exists in a way that can supply so much toilet paper at any one time. You know, there's only so many shelves allocated for toilet paper and there's only so much, you know, you want to stock. And so so there's this realness to it in terms of like, well, if I can't find toilet paper, toilet paper is scarce. But broadly speaking, I don't know if you if you ask the people who have toilet paper who've hoarded it, they say, oh, yeah, I know I've got toilet paper taken care of for the next 15 years. And so I don't know, next week, they're not going to need to buy toilet paper and I'll be able to buy toilet paper. Most of our lived experience proves that scarcity is not a real problem. Mm-hmm. Scarcity yes. is is more often, and I and and this comes from a place of privilege, fully fully recognizing and appreciating that. But for most people, scarcity is an imagined problem. Counseling, we look at anxiety as our body's response to real or imagined threats. You know, a real threat is there's a bear walking through my front door. An imagined threat is what if we run out of toilet paper? What if our checking account drops to zero and then our savings account drops to zero and then we don't have any way to pay our mortgage and then we're out on the street. Most of that is imagined. And when I think about how relationships can be put under stress by money, I think it really just boils down to that. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, and I was just thinking of um, kind of how our, our, our brain works with this too, because the amygdala fires that there's danger. And then the prefrontal cortex of our brain kind of goes into what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so danger, there's a bear in front of me. What's my plan to survive? Um, and danger, there's a virus looming. What's my plan? And so I think that's where we go to, oh, toilet paper. I need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our our we're our brain is just trying to help us survive this, sure. but it comes up as really wacky stuff sometimes. And, and I think that in a relationship that becomes kind of this looking at one another. And if you see the world and your plans differently, then, mm-hmm. you know, if one person, if toilet paper makes them feel safe, awesome. That's what that person probably needs to go do to feel safe. But if the partner is saying, this is ridiculous and we're not spending money on Mm -hmm. stocking up on toilet paper because they have the logic that you did, that you just described, which was, wait, this is all going to work out just fine. Um, Then I think those are the kinds of things that start to boil up in a relationship that is, we're both trying to survive this and we're both trying to feel safe and we're both trying to make a plan. But the way we approach this and our levels of scarcity and our internal panic and what we need to do to feel safe are very different. And so then then it becomes a money issue. Yeah. So my wife and I got married when we were 21. I grew up in a household where I bought my first car on my own when I was 16 for $100. It was a 1985 that had 150,000 miles and a cracked engine block and it moved technically. And so it was, that was, that was my first car. Lindsay's parents, because they had the resources, bought her her first car. Uh, I think it was a 2004. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, oh shoot. I've just told people what our first cars are. I'm going to have to bleep out what our first cars okay. are. Cause that might be passwords to our, um, 
well, or like banking information. They wouldn't have guessed that until you just shared that. So now right. you do have to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so she grew up in an environment where she was, her parents were able to meet most of her needs. And what they said to her was, we want to pay for your car. We want to pay for your insurance. We want to spend money on these things so that you can save your money. We want you to be able to save it so that you can have it for college, have it for getting your own place when you're older. You know, you you go babysit, you go work, you you save your money. So my wife probably made it to college before she ever like spent much money of anything on her own. And even in college, you know, her parents, you know, kind of guided most of that process. Whereas again, I was in an environment where I bought my own car, paid for my own car insurance, paid for my own cell phone. Like my my parent, my family had five kids. That just was the expectation. Like if you want a thing, you've got to spend money on that thing. Now all this is fine until we get to we're married. And now it's like, okay, would you want to go see a movie? Sure. And then eventually she's like, well, why are we spending so much money on movies? And I'm like, well, because movies cost money. And so for me, spending wasn't a problem because spending was like, yeah, we spend money to do these things. But for her, she was resistant to spending money because she wasn't used to seeing it come out of her accounts. And so ultimately what that is a situation of is we have similar needs, but different expectations regarding how to meet those needs. And when I try to help couples understand why in the most cases they're having conflict related to money, it's usually based somewhere there. It is, we both want safety and security. You think we should go about it this way. I think we should go about it this way. Unfortunately, most people carry those forward as assumptions. See, Lindsay grew up in an environment where she was able to save 100% of her paycheck. I grew up in an environment where I was able to save maybe 10% of a paycheck. And Ultimately, we got to a place where it's like, well, that, we both we can't do both of those numbers. We have to come up with a way, you know, how much of this money are we going to spend on toilet paper and how much of this money are we going to put into saving? But but it can't be zero on toilet paper and it can't be 100% saving, you know? So we had to find ways to negotiate that that met both of our needs, even though at the beginning, those assumptions weren't necessarily on the same page. I think that's an awesome example of, um, because I do think that we grow up with embedded beliefs about money and we don't really Mm. realize it because it's our only frame of reference. This is all we know is- The water we swim in, yeah. Exactly. And so we don't know there are other ways of managing money until we get in relationships or um, meet people, you know, outside of our family and start to hear, oh, not everybody does it this way. And so I think that what you're um, illustrating is such an important thing for couples to talk about is what was the attitude of money growing up? How how Mm -hmm. did money get treated? What, you know, even the embedded beliefs around what what did you hear about wealthy people? What did you hear about mm-hmm. poor people? What did you hear about what was success in your family's view? In my my parents' families, it's interesting because they both grew up really poor, but they were both the firstborn and determined to mm. uh, make money. So they paid their way through college. They figured out how to get jobs. They And then they came together and were very driven to reach a level of success because they hadn't known that before. And so I grew up watching them get happier as they made more money. Life got easier as they made more money, right? So from my vantage point as a child, I started to have this embedded belief that money makes you happy and money allows you to do things and money is what we should be working for every day of our life. And, And I didn't realize until I was an adult that that had all kind of 
been deeply embedded in me. Um, so nobody's fault, right? No, nothing was good or bad or wrong or right. Mm -hmm. It was just all I knew. And so right. then I think what you're saying is as a couple, you have to understand where are you coming from on this? What, right. what are your embedded beliefs? What is money to you? Yeah, I think most, if, if you've never had a conversation with your partner um, about the embedded beliefs, the assumptions that you have about money, either based on your family of origin or just based on the way you've been living your life, pause the podcast right now Yes, and go have that conversation. <laughs> exactly. It's, That's huge. It's a really important conversation it's to have. Really and, and important. ultimately, I think it is the sort of driving force behind a lot of where our, our hangups are. Yes. There was uh, a painting that I wanted to buy at one point. I had heard somebody have a conversation about how there were not enough feminist representations of God, that God is always portrayed in art, in conversation, et cetera. Always, God is always portrayed as a male. And hearing somebody talk about this, I was like, well, I'm raising two girls. I want to make sure that they don't grow up alienated from the feminine divine. So I found this really cool painting of a black female God giving birth to Eve, who was also black and female, and just thinking like, wow, like this is really, really powerful. It was only $750 to get a print. And so I said to Lindsay, like, okay, like I, let's get that. I really think we should have this hanging up in our house to show our girls this representation of God. And so for my wife, she was more like, I value all of those same things. I don't think we need to spend $750 on this painting to to get those values across. And so th again, those inclinations, those sort of assumptions that we make by default left to my own devices, that painting would be hanging up on my wall. But my wife and I were able to have a conversation about it and say, okay, let's, let's first boil this down to what is the actual need here? And then what are the assumptions that we're making about how to meet that need? You know, I saw a $750 painting and I said, oh, that's the way that I meet this need. And Lindsay says, hang on a second. <laughs> Maybe there's another way that we can meet this need. And incidentally, if anybody wants to donate that painting to me, uh, feel free. I don't remember <laughs> what it's called. You could probably Google it, but I still think it's a really cool painting. One, one sort of tool that you can ask yourself is, what do I assume? What, what do I think is supposed to happen with money? What, what I think is, what is the quote right way to do it? And then say, well, you're supposed to save this much. You're supposed to spend this much. You're supposed to not spend this percentage more than that. You know, you're supposed to save this much for retirement. You, you know, again, think about those things. And I promise you, every single one of those is an assumption. Oh, and such a powerful thing to do as a couple too. Um, and definitely a pre-marriage kind of activity uh, that would be really important for those that are listening that are... Um, in our, what was it, 30%-ish that are single right, or right. not attached, um, have that conversation also because, and do, a, before you meet a partner, kind of go through that with your own list of what what are my assumptions about money? Because then you kind of know what you're looking for in a partner. Do you want to match it? Do you want to complement it? Do you, do you need to be challenged? Um, but I think what yeah, the answering the question, money is blank, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it? And then um, for me, money is blank because, you know, there are those cliches of um, the, the concept of money makes life easier, but there's also the money is the root of all evil, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
uh, or that flippant kind of, it's only money. You can't take it with mm -hmm. you when you die. Um, right, or right. the rich get richer, the poor get poor. Those kinds of embedded beliefs are really interesting to uncover and, and go deeper with yourself and your partner of, mm -hmm. of realizing what we're carrying around in our subconscious that we're, we're not even really, um, aware of and, and then how that plays out in our spending habits. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a book that I read called You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero. Yeah, yeah. And it, it challenges us to consider, you know, we in particular, like how do we feel about being rich, getting rich, what it would be like to be rich. If you could wave a magic wand and you were rich tomorrow, would you feel great about that? Would you feel guilty about that? Would you feel embarrassed about that? If you said out loud the sentence, I like to make money, would you feel shallow? Would you feel, you know, and, and again, one of the underlying themes that we're, that we're talking about is it's hard to have conversations about money. I remember I was out to, I was having a, a drink with a buddy of mine, and this has been one of my best friends since high school. And we were just talking about our jobs and talking about things that were frustrating us. We, the topic of, of money came up. And I, I felt us for about 15 to 20 minutes dancing around saying how much money we made. Mm -hmm. And it was just this, this thing of, and then we kind of looked at each other and I'm thinking like, we, I was like, is there, can, should we just say how much money we make? And then like have this conversation on a level playing field, you know, based on, you know, having all the information on the table. Like what, what is it culturally that keeps us from having that kind of conversation? And so we said it and I was like, and it was the first time that it had ever, that I'd ever like said it out loud in that way, in a way that felt, you know, not anxiety provoking. Um, and so anyway, it was a really uh, interesting dynamic. And again, one that we sort of just take for granted that, oh yeah, that's, that's taboo or it's not, you know, not something that we talk. Um, and so, I mean, again, like in that particular context, it's still uncomfortable to have those conversations. Yeah. And it's interesting how shame is associated with, for some people with having money, there's, they mm -hmm. are shameful. They don't want to admit where they live or, or what they, um, or that their parents, they inherited something or they, so mm -hmm. we have this shame about having money and we have shame about not having money. And, mm -hmm. you know, and looking at what is your story? Um, uh, what is your, do you have a shame story around money? And, um, and then why is that? And why is it taboo that we don't talk about it? Cause you're right. What we have created with the taboo and the shame is a block to conversation. And right. so then when we're dating somebody, we feel like this is this thing I shouldn't bring up um, when actually it is the thing you should bring up because yeah. we both know it's probably the number one um, topic that comes up as an area of conflict in, in partnerships and in marriages. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we talked about the show Love is Blind in a two episode series, no less. <laughs> and it's, and one of the things was the topic of one person's debt didn't come up until they had like, basically had their engagement, you know, they were engaged, they had spent like a week in Cancun, and then they're finally like moving in together. And it's like, hey, by the way, I've got a ton of student loan debt. Because again, like it's easier to have intimate conversations about almost anything else than it is to have conversations about money. It's fascinating. It would be fascinating for me to understand why that is the case. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that at the level that it relates to our listeners, I think you just have to ask the question, why does that feel like it's the case for me? Mm -hmm. What is it? What is it that makes me feel uncomfortable in talking about money? 
And how can I overcome that barrier in the space of my relationship? Because having an honest conversation about money is going to be valuable to the ongoing success of my relationship. Uh, well, I think it brings up that um, deeper level of trust issue too, mm-hmm. right? And so m- talking about money may be the symptom of a deeper trust issue. Either you don't feel safe in this conversation for some reason, or you know there's a shame thing going on and so you don't bring it up with your partner. Um, and I think that's what we saw maybe in the love and is blind couple is that mm-hmm. she was scared to share that because she was afraid that would yeah. be a deal breaker. So clearly there was shame and a lack of safety in that relationship, which is just shocking that she didn't feel safe because I mean, they'd known each other for three days. Um, but the, <laughs> that was um, sarcasm. That was sarcasm. I'm learning from you slowly. Um, but, uh, but this deeper issue of trust, I think is another thing that comes up with, um, money a lot in couples of how transparent are we with our money? Like, do we merge all the accounts? Do I keep my own credit card? Do I need to tell you what I'm spending money on? Are we pooling all of our money? Are you know? And, mm-hmm. and so that really brings up not just the embedded beliefs going into that, but also our behaviors around how we... Um, how we have honest conversations with money and what is full mm-hmm. disclosure and what is, um, you know, I've I've worked with couples where the woman has a credit card that the husband doesn't know about and hides shopping in her trunk until she can sneak it into the house. And, you know, it's this, these behaviors are like, what are you afraid of? What's mm-hmm. what's going on here that we can't we can't have this honest conversation? Um yeah. 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 And I think that it is, you know, in years of teaching classes for premarital couples, you know, that question gets brought up a lot. Are we going to keep our finances together? Should we split them apart? And I think it all to me goes back to this question of you could make the argument either way, but it's always going to be based around trust. It's going to be based around how much do we feel secure in allowing the other person access into this part of me? And sometimes that's going to be resultant of our own trauma. Sometimes it's going to be the way we think about this is mine and I don't want anybody else to take this thing that is mine or be able to have this thing that is mine. But at a minimum, it deserves a conversation. Yeah, we, we hold these assumptions and, and you meant we talked about this idea of the water we swim in. We don't really recognize them you know, as assumptions. But um, I think that if you go through the exercise, and I've, I've kind of written down some of our points that I just want to make sure that we re- reiterate as we draw this particular episode to a close. Um, but one of them is y- you have to have a conversation with your partner. Um, if, if money consistently presents itself as a problem, then you have to find a way to, to broach the subject. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Having the conversation in a public place can be valuable, not super easy to do right now, um, but creating some kind of context that feels safe. You know, having it, you know, as you both jump into bed and you're saying, hey, I noticed this charge on the credit card, what's that all about, might not feel like a super safe place. So usually there's got to be some intentionality around it. Um, and so you're saying, hey, Sunday afternoon, we're going to sit down. Uh, we're going to look at the expenses from the past month and we're going to check those against our budget and figure out where we need to make changes. You know, if you want to go even deeper on a date night, that's where you begin to have the conversation around asking what it means to like what money means to you, asking what money means to you. What are the embedded beliefs, the values, the assumptions that I have about money? 
And that's, that's a deeper conversation, one that you can probably have with yourself and then have with your partner, you know, filling in the blank. What does money mean to me? Um, money is blank. Um, really taking a closer look at what you were taught about money from your families of origin, from, you know, the way that you had to, you know, kind of make your own way in the world. Yeah. And I'd say the third one is, um, this idea of scarcity or abundance mentality, do you see the world as having limited resources? And so I have to grab what I can when I can and then hang on tight to it? Or do you see the world with an abundance of um, money for you? And it's flowing and it's a, it's kind of that, um, you know, it comes to you and it goes away from you and more comes back to you. And do you trust that more is coming? And um, those are really foundational, I think, to to a lot of things, not just money, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, how you how you see scarcity in the world. And is it that you deserved to not have anything? You know, is that kind of an embedded belief? Like, well, you didn't work for it, so you don't have it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because those are things that we have to get really aware of. As painful and gross as it feels to kind of name some of that stuff, Mm -hmm. there is liberation and freedom in identifying that and then saying, oh, wait, I don't want to live that way. I want to work on this or I want to teach me something or how can I learn to see this differently? Um, And challenging those assumptions, once we kind of uncover the assumptions, then is that really the attitude I want to carry around in the world? And Mm -hmm. what does that do to my relationships if I live with that attitude? Right, right. And I, I was thinking as you, and you mentioned this before, the way that we sort of moralize this one way or the other, um, and taking a step back and just realizing that we, we don't want to necessarily look at any of these assumptions or any of these ways of being as sort of good or bad, or I'm doing it the right way, you're doing it the wrong way. And I would say that probably even extends to scarcity and abundance. Yeah, that's true. But what, but I think what it matters is that you're asking the question, um, Mm -hmm. that you're saying, am I being driven here by this concern about scarcity or perhaps am I am I being too inclined to imagine this resource to be abundant? Am I thinking that something is abundant when in fact it's it's more finite than than I realize? Um, and in either of those cases, you know, asking the question, you know, I was um, I've always thought it would be a cool idea to own a three D printer. Oh yes. And, and I've seen that a lot of three D printing people are making personal uh, exactly for hospital folks. So I was thinking, well that's the best way for me to be a good citizen mm-hmm. is to spend $300 on a 3d printer so that I can do this, um, help the world. Deed. Right. Yes. And, and, and that was a time where my wife who was more inclined probably towards scarcity than I am, but I'm maybe over inclined toward abundance. And in a moment we're saying, you know, in a world where our income reality is uncertain, is this where our resources need to go? And it, again, it is, it is so helpful. I think, that we ask those questions mm-hmm. instead of just saying, hey, no, 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 that's the wrong decision or you shouldn't do that, uh, but really to investigate it. I want to highlight too what you and Lindsay are doing is trying to help each other, right? You're you're not working against each other in that conversation. You're saying, I know you want this and I know this kind of makes sense, but is this really what we should be doing? Is this the best decision as a couple? And and so I like the way that you are partnering with one another to help each other, not like you want this and I don't want you to have it. So I'm going to, you know, right. and so that's, you're kind of modeling this really, um, 
this this model of marriage of we're in this together and we are yeah. a partnership and we're helping each other. And sometimes that means we have to point things out to each other that we might not be seeing. Right, right. I'm I'm just I want to recap these points. Have the conversation, even if it's hard, it usually means you have to be intentional. Um, challenge and investigate your own embedded beliefs and values and assumptions. Evaluate how scarcity and abundance, how those biases are influencing the way that you're approaching the process. And this final point that you mentioned, Ginger, of you're on each other's team. That is the the default position that you need to come from, which is not how can I block um, my partner or why is my partner always trying to keep me from doing the thing that I want to do, but instead asking the question, um, you know, what is it? What does it look like to support each other? What does it look like to move both of us forward in a way that's going to be most valuable? Exactly. Beautiful. We've got a lot more content on this, so I think this I is a well we'll keep going back to. This is entry level. How's that? <laughs> this is Perfect. this is you know the, the money one hundred and one uh, space, and uh, you know we'll take closer looks at some of the more specific themes. And I think it would be great to get a guest on here um, at some juncture to to talk to about some of the more logistical things because some of the questions that came in, which is like. I think we should be saving for retirement, but my partner wants to travel. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some things that feel mutually exclusive. And what does it look like to navigate that? And, and I'd be curious to hear from a quote expert or just an expert, not even an air quotes that's expert, just an actual expert, um, just yeah. sort of gu- guiding us on like, not necessarily, okay, what's the right situation? Because they won't be able to say that. But um, how do we arrive at those conclusions ourselves? Um, yeah, I think, I, think that, I think there's a lot of material here. I started scratching notes as we were going, like the limited beliefs, the kind of mm-hmm. vision as a couple of where are we headed, what do we want, and then backing into that. Then a question that I get from a lot of women is, um, you know, this idea of um, – who, what are the contributions between a couple? So if a, if a woman is not working, um, mm-hmm. what, what does the balance of money look like in that relationship versus an equal um, contributor to money? And then what yeah. should the balance be? So I think we've got a lot of, a lot oh, of yeah, topics. No, that came up. Yeah. How to respect the spouse who makes less money. Are you making them feel valued in their contribution, even if it isn't as significant to the household? That was There you go. Perfect. Up. You know, uh, joint purchases. You know, we haven't even gotten to the probably the one that feels most relevant, which is how do we deal with unexpected situations like the one that we're in like right now? now. Um, yeah. Navigating trust, uh, sharing finances and non-married relationships, you know, like when you're just roommates yeah. or, oh, or even good. even thinking about like, you know, like family. What do you do when your when your brother asks you for a loan? You know, again, thinking about some of the more uh, technical things like credit scores and investment strategies and those types of things, partner expectations, boundaries around money, um, simple budgeting types of things, um, navigating the emotions we feel. To, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot it's of space stuff. for this one. And honestly, it's one of the ones that we had got the most listener requests for so far is to is to have conversations about this. So again, nowhere if if you feel frustrated that we didn't get to the thing that feels most relevant to you, we will get to it um, at some juncture. But uh, want to try to stick to our roughly 30 minute goal uh, for the episode. So. That will do it for us today. I'm James Cochran, and you can find information about my practice at talkingwithjames.com. And I'm Ginger Rothis, and you can find me at compassionfix.com. And as a reminder, we've got episodes coming out on Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, This last Tuesday, we had Tino Herrera uh, come on and talk about grudges. Tuesdays is kind of when we have our um, our shorter episodes with a more diverse cast of characters. And then uh, Fridays, Ginger and I will be coming out with our, I don't know, what would you call it? 
I mean, life-changing conversations, I think. Yeah, the right? transformational, um, impactful <laughs> ones come out on Friday. So, Well, I um, can't wait to listen to you and Tino. I'm a big fan of both of yours. So that'll be <laughs> no, good. It, it's interesting. Tino is the one of the more thoughtful people I've ever uh, known. And he is also, he's, he's a listener by, by nature. And so um, it was sometimes I was trying to get, I was like, okay, talk, say more. Cause everything he says is just profound and valuable. Uh, But his inclination is just to listen. I was like, no, this is a podcast. Like your, your voice actually does. I need it for this thing to work. So Um, (laughs) he's great. It'll be fun to listen to. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for us today. We hope you guys, uh, Keep safe through this season. And be well.